This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, the play that is part four of the Henriad, though that's something nobody wants you to know. It's Richard III. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of your... God take King Edward to his mercy, and leave the world for me to bustle in. For never yet one hour in his bed did I enjoy the golden dew of sleep. Was ever woman in this humour wooed? Was ever woman in this humour won? He is not lulling on a lewd lovebed, but on his knees at meditation. Not dallying with a brace of courtesans, but meditating with two deep divines. Is there a murderer here? No. Yes, I am. Hear me, you wrangling pirates that fall out in sharing that which you have killed from me. Oh. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. All right, as usual, I'm going to give you your one-minute summary to get you up to speed. You probably did have to read this one in school, or maybe you've seen one of the many movie iterations. But just in case, here's Richard III in one minute. Okay, let's start the timer, and go. Nothing is rotten in the state of England. Edward IV is on the throne, and the winter of discontent has been made glorious summer by the son of York. This summer isn't so glorious for Edward's brother Richard, who is making plans to seize the crown. To do this, he needs to eliminate all the other heirs, who secretly lets Edward know of a prophecy that could be interpreted to mean Edward will be murdered by their brother Clarence. Clarence is locked in the Tower of London, Richard hires murderers, and Clarence is drowned. Edward learns of Clarence's death, falls ill, and dies. Richard is now Lord Protector. Edward's sons come to London so Edward V can be crowned, but Richard has them put in the tower for safekeeping, and surprise, they're soon found murdered. With his allies, Richard eliminates those who oppose him, and soon enough, he's made king. Earlier, Richard wooed and married Anne Neville, the widow of the former Prince of Wales, but he soon learns Edward's daughter is planning to marry the Duke of Richmond, aka the son of Henry VI. Richard has Anne killed, so he can woo his niece, but he is betrayed, and she marries Richmond, who is mounting a campaign against him. All of these various murders cause Richard to lose his allies and alienate himself. Soon, Richmond invades, and there's a battle where Richard III offers to trade his kingdom for a horse. No one takes him up on the deal. He's offered death instead, and Richmond ascends the throne. Richard III, the best of Shakespeare's early plays, has several problems, but few of them are Shakespeare's. After nearly half a dozen plays of dubious merit, Shakespeare finally found his legs in this story of the hunchbacked man who would be king. Despite its length, it's the second longest in the canon, it moves fairly swiftly, mostly because Shakespeare hit upon an idea that was probably novel at the time. Why don't we have something happen in almost every scene? Now this can't be said of all the scenes in Shakespeare's early plays, or even his later ones. In all these cases, the action is sometimes paused, so some clown can display their wit. But there are no clowns in Richard III, unless you count the men who kill Clarence. And even I have to admit their discussion about whether or not to kill him goes on a little too long. But that's really a minor flaw in what is essentially a great piece of theater. I never truly tire of Richard III. Thankfully, neither has the rest of the world. Until now, all his plays have been ensemble pieces, and while a few characters are memorable, none of them can truly be said to drive the story. Put another way, none of those early plays have a main character. All that changes with Richard III, which is the first play whose title is completely apropos. The title suggests the play is concerned with the life and death of Richard III, and what a surprise, that's exactly what it is. 
Indeed, Richard hardly ever leads the stage, and dominates the action so thoroughly that all the other characters are almost lost in the shadow of his hunched back. Who is Buckingham? Who is Catesby? Immemorable brutes, to be sure. Richard, on the other hand, has survived throughout the centuries. He delights us by, to paraphrase George Bernard Shaw, provoking God and dying unrepentant, game to the last. Now, Richard is a magnificent role for any actor, and the story is focused and fairly comprehensible to even the Shakespeare neophyte. Richard's a guy who wants to be king, and he merely conjoles tricks and murders his way to the throne. Power corrupts, he loses his allies, and he is defeated on the battlefield even as he tries to trade his kingdom for a horse. Now, compared to the complicated plots of the Henry VI plays, this is simplicity itself. And unlike those two gentlemen of Verona who get away with acting like cads, Richard III is ultimately punished for his sins. Everyone can enjoy Richard III because he is a villain who is defeated before the curtain falls. All of this is what has made Richard III so popular, but it's also what has left the play to be often misinterpreted and misunderstood. Richard III, as I said, is one of the longest in the canon, second only to Hamlet, and the similarities between the two are actually rather striking. Both feature title characters who like to recite soliloquies and are out for revenge. But Hamlet is ill-equipped for the task, primarily because he doesn't want the one thing that Richard craves, the crown. Do not mistake Richard III for a tale of ambition. That's just what a century worth of theatre producers would really like you to believe. It's no coincidence that Shakespeare was writing Richard in the wake of the massive popularity of the Spanish tragedy, Thomas Kidd's play that was so much about revenge that the motivation itself appears on stage embodied by an actor who never gets a break. Given that Kidd's play featured a play within a play as a means to trap a murderer, its influence on Hamlet is obvious. Its influence on Richard III, however, has not been so widely discussed. Richard is a man with a hunchback and a withered arm, who was, to quote his famed opening speech, quote, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, end quote. Put another way, his mother never loved him. That is evident by her treatment of him in the play, and his father was cheated of the crown by all those loyal to the House of Lancaster. Oh, and there's that little fact that his father was also murdered, or should we say butchered, by Queen Margaret and Lord Clifford halfway through Henry VI, Part Three. That Richard has never known love is obvious. He complains of it almost every chance he gets. Here's him in Henry VI, Part Three. Why, love forswore me in my mother's womb. And for I should not deal in her soft laws, she did corrupt frail nature with some bribe to shrink mine arm up like a withered shrub to make an envious mountain on my back where sits deformity to mock my body, to shape my legs of an unequal size, to disproportion me in every part, like to a chaos or an unlicked bear whelp that carries no impression like the dam. And am I then a man to be beloved? And now here he is at the start of Richard III. But. I, that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking-glass, I, that am rudely stamped, and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph. Shakespeare shows us at every opportunity that Richard is definitely lacking in love's majesty. Lady Anne calls him a hedgehog and a black magician. Margaret calls him a devil and a murderous villain. 
Elizabeth begs that God grant she may never have need of him, and let's not forget that his own mother curses him, giving her prayers to his enemies and predicting a sad and bloody death for her last remaining son. Is there ever a woman who truly loves him? Lady Anne marries him, but she is duped. She doesn't love Richard, but rather the thing he pretends to be. Similarly, his brothers and allies all see the man he projects. Only we, in the audience, see him for what he is, and we aren't even part of the story. Actually though, I'd suggest we aren't there at all. I don't think this is some meta-theatrical gambit in which Richard knows he's in a play. Rather, I always imagine Richard is talking to some imagined ally, or, as is more likely, himself. After all, in a world where no one knows the real Richard, the one he is beneath all of his false faces, Richard is the only ally that Richard has. And this is something that Richard himself knows. What do I fear myself? There's none else by. Richard loves Richard. That is, I am I. Since he cannot prove a lover, as he says, he will be a villain. He spends the play avenging himself, not only of his fate in the world, but also of what was done to his father and family by Margaret and her minions. Richard isn't just Shakespeare's first great villain, he's also the bard's first really sympathetic one. To view Richard as simply an ambitious man who is as deformed on the inside as he is on the out is to entirely miss the point. This is why it would be far better if Richard III was always performed in tandem with Henry VI Part Three. If we must edit Richard III, let us interpolate the scenes where Richard's father is butchered and Richard's subsequent dealings with the Allies to the House of Lancaster. Because when taken in tandem with Henry VI Part Three, it is clear that while Richard is not a hero, he also is not the devil that everyone seems to want him to be. I suppose that I, like many historians, am trying my best to rehabilitate Richard, but as Harold Bloom points out, you can't fight Shakespeare and win, and I don't think you can fight four centuries of productions and win either. It may be that no one produces Richard alongside Henry VI Part Three because nobody wants a sympathetic Richard III. People seem to like him to be the evil monster who gets his just desserts. It makes us feel better to imagine a universe where an ambitious monster like Richard III will fall on the battlefield in the end. And so producers have, and most likely will continue, to wrench the play away from the Henry VI plays and make Richard III go out into the world entirely on his own. Harold Bloom remarks that Richard III is a nightmare for any actress. Bloom has no patience for Margaret, who he calls ghastly, but who, as I've indicated in the past, I quietly love. However, it's true that the women in the play all have pretty thankless roles. They are not truly part of the story, but then neither are any of the men. See, all the satellite characters in Richard III are chess pieces that Richard moves either about the stage or into an early grave. Few plays in the canon rely so heavily on the actor who plays the lead. You know, if you don't like your Juliet, well, there's always a Romeo to enjoy. And even if your Brutus is a failure, as was Jason Robarbs in the 1970 film, you can still have a Marcus Anthony to admire. But there are few secondary characters of any note in Richard III, so if the actor playing him is lost, the production is too. However, it's true that Richard has little time for women, and Shakespeare even less. Shakespeare can't even be bothered to show Lady Anne's death, echoing the fact that Richard dismisses her with a single line before moving on. 
Queen Margaret is a termagant in every scene she's in, and when the play is performed away from the Henry VI plays, this can begin to feel like a useless part given to an actress so her agent will stop bothering you with calls. Margaret is actually a part that is often cut from productions of Richard III, including the Laurence Olivier film and the Ian McKellen version that was done in the 90s. Margaret, of course, is in the aftermath of the Henry VI plays, a trilogy that saw her become an adulterous queen and a schemy politician who causes the death of all the men she has ever loved. Loved. Margaret is Richard's opposite. He is everything that she herself hoped to become. She recognizes him for the evil thing that he is, but no one believes her, and so she is left to watch him become the thing that she herself wanted most of all to be, the most powerful person in the land. Richard is horrendous to all the women in his life, using them and discarding them as he sees fit, but no one provokes quite the same reaction as Margaret, who Richard seems to fear more than hate. Ah, gentle villain, do not turn away. Foul wrinkled witch, what makes thou in my sight? But repetition of what thou hast marred, that will I make before I let thee go. Would thou not banish it on pain of death? I was, but I do find more pain in banishment than death can yield me here by my abode. If I could rewrite Richard III, I'd have given Anne, Margaret, Elizabeth, and the Duchess of York much more to do. Then again, perhaps the fact that they have nothing to do is more or less the point. The Duchess of York is old, Margaret is declawed, Elizabeth is essentially weak, and Anne agreed to marry the man who killed both her husband and her father-in-law. The Duchess and Elizabeth can be forgiven for their circumstance, which is beyond their control. But Margaret and Anne both made their beds, and Shakespeare makes them lie in it. While I'm talking about the women, a quick note is due on the scene where Richard seduces Anne. I'm going to say it is one of the finest Shakespeare ever wrote, and actors looking to practice their craft would do well to master this scene. Consider what happens in the span of a few minutes. At the start, Anne and Richard are enemies. She calls him a hedgehog. He is a murderer, something she will not allow him to forget. But by the end of the scene, things are much different. I would I knew thy heart. Disfigured in my tongue. I fear me both are false. Then never man was true. Well, well, put up your sword. Say then, my peace is made. That shalt thou know hereafter. But shall I live in hope? All men, I hope, live so. <laughs> Vouchsafe to wear this ring. Look how my ring encompasseth thy finger. Even so thy breast encloseth my poor heart. Wear both of them, for both of them are thine. Now all the actors who play Richard get to be diabolical, but there is nothing more diabolical than this scene where Richard seduces Anne by convincing her that he has repented all of the mistakes for the sake of her heart. Actors who have to play Richard and Anne in this scene really have to run an emotional obstacle course. And the great challenge is that we, the audience, are on Anne's side when the scene begins. Richard has to seduce us as well, and by the end, Anne's acceptance of him has to seem completely realistic. This is the great challenge that all actors who play Richard have to overcome. That Anne buys Richard's seduction ploy says more about her than it does about Richard. And in fact, the fact that Richard is successful at all in gaining the crown actually says a lot about the weaknesses of those around him than it does about any of his particular strengths. 
To be sure, Richard is a smooth and conniving thing. But to bring up another story that is centuries old, the serpent only offered Eve the apple. She's the one who took it. So who's really the one to blame? A similar thing can be said about Edward, the king who believes the trumped-up prophecy about his brother Clarence, or Buckingham, who trades his honor for the earldom of Hereford, or even the crooked Tyrrell, who conducts his murders in exchange for a bag of gold. You can call Richard a villain if you like, but if you ask me, the true villains are those who buy everything that Richard tries to sell. Richard is not just someone who manipulates. He tempts. And the true tragedy of the play is that everything he does actually works. He understands human nature better than anyone else on stage. But he, like Oedipus centuries before, has too much hubris to see that even he can be defeated. When he denies Buckingham the earldom, he has gone too far. He thinks that he cannot be touched, when he should have known that the best way to earn an enemy is to not pay them the price you promised. That, as Richard should have known, is human nature too. Richard III was written about the same time as Titus Adronicus. Both are blood-soaked horror stories. Titus, though, isn't nearly as devoted to the supernatural as Richard III, which fulfills the promise begun all the way back in Henry VI Part I. Now there, if you'll recall, Joan of Arc talked to God and was visited by spirits. In the next play, the Duchess of Gloucester is caught using witchcraft to doom King Henry. Throughout all the Henry VI plays, people dream, curse, and make prophecies which we, clever audience that we are, know will come true. It's no different in Richard III, where Lord Stanley dreams that, quote, the boar has raised his helm, end quote. Richard's own mother curses him, and Clarence has a long monologue devoted to his dream about his own death. That dream comes true, as do all the prophecies in these plays, and so Shakespeare sets up the rules of this supernatural world. Richard III lives in an England where the ghosts are real, the curses come to pass, and there's every reason to believe that the prophecy you heard is about to come true. When Richard claims that his hunchback and withered arm has been caused by witchcraft, everyone believes him. Why wouldn't they? This is entirely keeping with the world in which these characters live. But Richard, for his part, is almost definitely an agnostic. There's little evidence that he believes in anything other than himself. Anytime he professes faith, it is always in the service of some ulterior motive. In trying to plant himself on the throne, Richard is already defined the natural order of things. There are rules about succession, after all. Now he also defies the laws of the supernatural world. Richard does not subscribe to all these religious beliefs, and he also uses them to his advantage. He begins with those dangerous inductions to set his brother Clarence against the king. Brother, good day. What means this armed guard that waits upon your grace? His majesty, tendering my person's safety, hath appointed this conduct to convey me to the tower. Upon what cause? Because my name is George. Alack, my lord, that fault is none of yours. He should for that commit your godfathers. Oh, belike his majesty hath some intent that you should be new christened in the tower. But what's the matter, Clarence, may I know? Yea, Richard, when I know, but I protest as yet I do not. But as I can learn, he hearkens after prophecies and dreams, and from the cross row plucks the letter G, and says a wizard told him that by G his issue disinherited should be. Later, Richard plays the penitent, in order to woo not just Lady Anne, but also the Mayor of London. 
When the mayor shows up, Richard feigns being at prayer at precisely the moment when the world has come to give him the thing that he desires most. See where his grace stands between two clergymen. Two props of virtue for a Christian prince to stay him from the fall of vanity. And see a book of prayer in his hand. True ornaments to know a holy man. Famous Plantagenet, most gracious prince, lend favorable ear to our requests and pardon us the interruption of thy devotion and right Christian zeal. My lord, there needs no such apology. I do beseech your grace to pardon me, who, earnest in the service of my God, deferred the visitation of my friends, but leaving this, what is your grace's pleasure? Even that I hope which pleaseth God above and all good men of this ungoverned isle. All of this false religious zeal will come back to haunt Richard, quite literally, when the ghosts of all he has killed appear to him in the final act. I've spoken before about Shakespeare's use of ghosts. One has to pay close attention to who sees the ghost and who doesn't. Here, Richard is alone in his tent. Joan of Arc was alone when she saw her ghost in Henry VI Part I, and Shakespeare, clever writer that he was, echoes that scene here, allowing him to bookend the Henriad with two very different sort of infidels confronting the ghosts that plague them. That Richard is alone in his tent when he sees his ghosts brings to mind the old question of whether the ghosts are real or figments of a distracted mind. Given the supernatural atmosphere of Richard III, not to mention the belief system of Shakespeare's England, I suspect that the ghosts were meant to be real, and that Richard, as George Bernard Shaw said, truly does remain unrepentant right to the end. I say this despite the fact that Shakespeare has tried his best to suggest otherwise. Remember earlier in the play, Lady Anne remarks that Richard is plagued by bad dreams, and given the importance of dreams in this play, one can only imagine what those timorous night musings might have been. Now later, Shakespeare also gives Richard a moment of introspection. I am a villain, yet I lie, I am not. Fool of thyself, speak well. Fool, do not flatter. My conscience hath a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. Perjury in the highest degree, murder, stern murder in the direst degree, all several sins, all used in each degree, throng all to the bar, crying, all guilty, guilty. Richard is tempted to truly repent, but at the last minute he pulls back. He knows what he is, and he dies as the thing he has decided to be. Yet despite all of the blood on his hands, I still pity Richard, and I'm pretty sure Shakespeare did too. You know, Shakespeare was perfectly capable of giving us a villain who was unsympathetic, see Othello's Iago or Aaron in Titus Adronicus, yet he went out of his way to give Richard compelling motivations for what he did. As Shakespeare's first great tetralogy comes to a close, we cannot help but recognize one simple truth. Taken on their own, each of the Henry VI plays make for mediocre nights at the theater, and yet when taken with Richard III, and seen as one immense play split into four chapters, Shakespeare's skill at weaving together various ideas and themes becomes all the more clear. If these plays are slighted by scholars, I would suggest that it's because we are looking at them individually. Henry VI Part I is a bad play, much as the first three chapters of Les Miserables would make for a very bad book. But Les Mis has lots of chapters, and so does Henry VI. Taken with its three sequels, 
Henry VI Part One becomes a play whose worth is suddenly clear. Similarly, while Richard III is a fine play on its own, it becomes a far finer play when viewed in connection with its predecessors. Richard himself was in the wrong. But there's an argument to be made that his family was in the right. Henry VII, who takes over after Richard III's death, is the great-grandson of the man who deposed Richard II. Edward IV had every right to the throne. Richard III, it can be argued, lost the throne not because his family didn't have the right to it, but because he himself tried to take it by murderous means. By the time the final battle ends, there is no one left to inherit the throne except for Henry VII. And that is Richard's fault too. Queen Margaret is a wonderfully tragic character because she engineers her own destruction. Richard engineers not only his own destruction, but that of his entire bloodline. It's a masterful end to a quartet of less than masterful plays. Richard's purpose was to avenge his father's murder and dominate a world that never loved him. Instead, he destroyed his father's legacy and earned a reputation as one of the greatest villains history ever produced. Now comes the part in the podcast where I'm going to talk about filmed versions of the play I discussed. Of all the plays in Shakespeare's eight-play history cycle, Richard III is second only to Henry V in popularity. Therefore, there's a good handful of filmed versions of this play to choose from. Now, most people would move immediately to Laurence Olivier's version from 1955, but I wouldn't be among them. I don't really mind the film, but there's something too self-serious about Olivier's Richard. He's doing Shakespeare, and every time he speaks, he really wants you to know it. And while I enjoy the interpolations from Henry VI Part Three, the complete omission of Queen Margaret strikes me as an unforgivable sin. Now, Margaret is also cut from the 1995 film version with Ian McKellen, a problematic version that sets the play in World War II-era Britain and portrays Richard as a Nazi-esque dictator. I will say, I love McKellen's Richard, and I think he is one of the best people to play the role. And I really appreciate this version's attempt to enlarge the role of Lady Anne and make the minor role of Rivers a lot more interesting by turning him into Queen Elizabeth's brother. But this version clips along at a little too fast a pace and sometimes feels like a greatest hits version of the play. Here's your winter discontent speech. Here's my horse, my horse, my kingdom for a horse. Roll credits. I understand why Olivier and McKellen both cut Queen Margaret. In removing Richard III from the other Henry VI plays, Margaret becomes moot. But Margaret isn't moot to me, and she wasn't all that moot to Shakespeare, and I'm a purist, and so I will recommend The Hollow Crown, where Richard is Benedict Cumberbatch, and he continues to rail against Queen Margaret right until the bitter end. Now, there's also the 1960 miniseries in Age of Kings, and in both these cases, the acting is top-notch, and Richard III is presented in conjunction with the three Henry VI plays, allowing the viewer to gain a deeper understanding of what Shakespeare was going for. But the film I really am going to recommend here is Al Pacino's 1996 documentary, Looking for Richard, which serves as both an examination of Richard III as a play, and is also a performance of selected scenes. Pacino examines Richard and also plays him in reenactments alongside Vanessa Redgrave, Kevin Spacey, Alec Baldwin, and a few other really talented actors. I credit the film 
with helping me gain better insight into a play whose popularity for a long time I could never understand, primarily because I had always been made to watch the play as an isolated piece and not in connection to a larger story. Now, Looking for Richard goes on a little too long, but for the first two thirds, the play really does provide an excellent in-depth look of what makes Richard III tick, both as a character and as a piece of drama. I don't agree with all their interpretations, but you know, that's not really the point. The movie serves as a great companion piece for anyone looking for a better understanding of this complicated, but ultimately very worthwhile play. That's it for Richard III, and that's also it for the first of Shakespeare's great tetralogy of history plays. Next episode, we'll look at Titus Adronicus, a play that couldn't get produced in the 19th century, and now is enjoying a surge of popularity. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Run Bard. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it in the iTunes store. That would really help me out. If you have a comment, you can visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare Run Bard, where you can also find other information about me and my work. And hey, you know what? While you're there, why not pick up a copy of my novel, The Thunder of Giants? It's a book about two eight-foot-tall women struggling to survive in a world too small to contain them. It's available from St. Martin's Press, and you can find more information about that on my website. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. Six plays down, 32 to go. And then as we have taken the sacrament, we will unite the white rose and the red. Smile heaven upon this fair conjunction that long have frowned upon their enmity. Will Shakespeare as a play, let's go and cough through it.